I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, the monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind threebrothersfilm.com have substantial, nuanced conversations about film. I'm Anders Berkstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anton. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this month, we're talking about Matt Reeves' newest big screen take on the Cape Crusader, The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson. We want to offer a sincere thanks to everyone who's been listening to our podcast. As always, five-star ratings, reviews of the show, and especially recommendations on social media really do a lot to bring new listeners to the podcast. As well, if you've enjoyed our conversations here and our writing at threebrothersfilm.com, please consider offering us some support or a tip on our Patreon site. Now, onto our show as we dive into the grim and gritty world of Gotham City. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Fear is a tool. But when that light hits the sky, it's not just a call. It's a warning. As superhero films continue their decade-long dominance of the global box office and pop cultural landscape, it was inevitable that Warner Brothers would want to leverage their most popular and successful superhero, sorry Superman, into another standalone series. Matt Reeves' even darker take on the Dark Knight detective, The Batman, returns viewers to the corrupt and crime-ridden streets of Gotham City, with Robert Pattinson donning the cape and cowl as a relatively young and developing Batman in only his second year of his fight against crime. Reeves' take on Batman is heavy on mood and unvarying in tone. It's not an exaggeration to say that this Batman is moody, even emo in his angst and anger. He stalks his criminal prey, not just hiding in the shadows but declaring, I am the shadows. Prone to vicious attacks on his enemies, he nonetheless shuns lethal force, a nod to the traumatic loss of his parents, which in Reeves' film, notable among filmic adaptations, is never shown on screen. Much has been made of Reeves' film as a neo-noir, and to an extent it fits the bill, at least the popular memory of one. The Batman is set up as a mystery, as the film opens with the murder of the city's mayor in his urban mansion by a hooded and bespeckled Riddler who leaves cryptic riddles for this Batman and his companion in crime fighting. Not a young Robin, but Jeffrey Wright's Lieutenant Jim Gordon. Batman and Gordon must navigate a city as drenched in corruption as it is in unending sheets of rain. Descending into the criminal underworld of mobsters and corrupt cops and politicians, Reeves gives us a new take on the Penguin. Here a compatriot of Gotham's mob boss, Carmine Falcone, and sometime ally in a nightclub waitress and cat burglar, Selina Kyle. Reeves quite obviously takes his greatest inspiration from David Fincher's 1995 neo-noir detective film, Seven, offering an urban environment pushed to the extremes of decay and darkness. This can be seen not only in the Riddler's elaborate, symbolically charged murders, but in the film which pushes the levels of darkness both thematically and visually beyond anything yet seen in the Batman mythos. In moments, the cinematography is not only desaturated and drained of color or depth, it is legitimately difficult to make out what's on screen, as Reeves radically limits the focus and lighting so that only small portions of the screen are legible. A recent internet meme joked that, given the visual trajectory of the Batman films this one extends, the next iteration would literally be a black screen. The perpetually rain-soaked streets of Gotham, 
suggests a pathetic fallacy as unchanging and dour as Pattinson's Batman. And while not a problem in theory, in moments it threatens to become parodic. This Gotham is as gothic as all gets out. This Batman, a vampiric creature residing in his shadowy downtown tower. So perhaps, appropriately, Pattinson, who made his big screen name as a handsome and beguiling vampire, is actually quite good in the role, and one of the stronger elements of the film. For the most part, Reeves has assembled a good cast, though some of the choices he makes for characters left me slightly baffled. Reeves is at least cinema literate, if not particularly playful in his references. It's more than can be said for most Marvel films with their bland cinematography and sarcastic tone. He references films such as The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and the voyeuristic use of point of view and watching as a thematic focus recalls the noirish films of Brian De Palma. Reeves is also helped by a pretty great orchestral score by Michael Giacchino. Days later, I still find myself humming the Batman's dirge-like theme, which recalls the Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back, even if I found the film's repetitive use of Nirvana's Something in the Way to take me out of its spell. So why do I find myself so disappointed in this film, which many are claiming is among the very best Batman films? I can see what the admirers are talking about. At least it doesn't seem like they saw a completely different film than I did. I just can't get excited about this take on Batman. I find Reeves to be a strangely unmoving filmmaker. Nothing I saw about his Planet of the Apes films appealed to me, and I didn't find his Let Me In to be an improvement on the Swedish original. For a film that bills itself as even more realistic and cynical than even Christopher Nolan's relatively grounded and realistic Bat films, I found the Batman to be both stultifying in its pacing and narrative choices, which do more to appear sophisticated than actually surprise and thrill, lacking the twists of other classic neo-noirs such as De Palma's Blowout or Curtis Hansen's Ellie Confidential. It was always clear what the outcome was. Its world seemed strangely narrowed, reflecting its tonal and visual style. It's Gotham strangely small, for all the implied scale. The characters repeatedly return to a select few locations, and leave the background characters and world feeling as mechanical as video game NPCs, perhaps an intentional nod to the recent Batman Arkham video game series. Nothing feels lived in, nor surreal and baroque as what we find in Burton or Schumacher's films. Lastly, the film failed to thrill me, creating that frisson of excitement and scale that Nolan's films capture so effectively. So, am I merely an old, old grouch, guys? You both liked it, this film a great deal more than me. Aaron, we've already read your review on the website, where you praised the film for many of the aspects I've described. Anton, what about you? You seem more positive, or at least appreciative, of what Reeves does here. What did you like about this film? Am I off base? Or is this simply a matter of taste? I thought the film was a very effective mood piece, which I say in my essay for the site. And I will admit that like, I was extremely skeptical when this movie was in production. I was basically skeptical until I sat down to start watching it. And I found the movie kind of slow, but also atmospheric, slowly entrancing and almost like hypnotic. And I felt like once I got into the mindset or the mood that the film seems to be trying to cultivate or create, that I really liked it. And you talk about how it doesn't excite. For me, it's not so much like the the same sort of uh, wowing thrills as the best and liveliest action scenes in the Dark Knight trilogy, but it has like a it has like slow burning thrills. And for me, like some of those moments where the Batman slowly comes out of the shadows 
And then, you know, before he sort of bursts into, you know, pummeling the bad guys, those I actually found really compelling, especially when complemented by sort of the haunting and throbbing score. How about you, Aaron? Well, as you said, I've you've already read my review. I wasn't skeptical going into it. I've basically just have this approach with all superhero movies now, which is we're getting them whether we want it or not. So let's see what we can get. And I'm not like a huge fan of Matt Reeves. I, I don't dislike him at all. It's just, you know, I the movies I've seen of his, I think are like pretty good. I, I'm pretty fond of Cloverfield, probably particularly among his movies. But he, I would never put him as like a favorite filmmaker or anything like that. But going into this movie, um, I guess my biggest skepticism was out of the three hour runtime, which is pretty almost infamous and a, a bit of a joke within online circles about how long and how many endings this movie has and how it's like, does it, does it really justify three hours, this Batman movie? And maybe surprising myself coming out of it, I was like, I thought that was a pretty good three hours spent. It was extremely stylish. It was extremely, um, it was, it was just a considered take. Like there was a very clear reason that um, Reeves and Pattinson were attracted to this material and wanted to um, pursue the, the film and the way that their approach, the tone, and it's it's just one of those movies where I, I come over it being like, not every choice I agree with, absolutely, but I liked where it took me, and I thought it was an interesting variation on the character that doesn't merely repeat what we've seen before on the big screen, yeah. while also actually bringing some elements from the comic books and other media into it that we haven't seen before. And so I thought see, that was refreshing. See, like, I, I would agree with that, that I think one of the film's successes is giving us a distinct portrait of Batman from the other films. And, and in fact, I was surprised that it achieved that. Although this film does, like, have elements of the other Batman movies and elements, as Anders has mentioned, um, of all sorts of other films and comic books and stuff, right? This is really, in some sense, a work of pastiche, but, like, I think that the film actually achieves like a distinct Batman and that alone I think is one of the reasons I think it's good. I'm a little bit more lukewarm on the three hour runtime. I, I, I don't think it earns the full three. Not so much for Anders reasons. Like I actually don't dislike um, the false climax and then the, the extended one. This is maybe one of the few superhero films where I actually think um, the late extended climax is actually useful uh, narratively. But I do think that they could have trimmed a lot and just tightened things up. Given, I think we're inevitably going to get a sequel to this film, they could have held off on that extended climax, the whole scene in the, uh, the Gotham Square Gardens. I, I actually thought, I honestly, the, the, I knew the film was three hours going into it. And when the film hits the, the sort of initial climax, which culminates in the confrontation with uh, John Turturro's Falcone, Outside the club. I actually thought no. inside the club and then his, the, the Riddler's sort of, you know, shooting him. Uh, I thought that the film was actually over. And the pacing of the film was such that I was shocked when I looked at my clock and was like, oh, wait, we still have another like 45 minutes to go. I was like, I actually thought the film had been three hours at that point. <laughs> That's the kind of way that, that the entrancing pacing had played on me, that I thought it had already reached the three hours. And so that extra time... Um, it also felt to me like they needed, they felt they needed to go bigger, and I actually would have actually liked the film a great deal more, even with its sort of, as I described it, I thought kind of, uh, if, if you want to be unkind, lethargic pace to it, um, 
I actually would have liked it better if it stopped there instead of feeling that it needed to have that that climactic action scene because I didn't particularly like it. Uh, you know, I, I I understand apparently I haven't followed comic books uh, in a while, but some people have mentioned that it kind of sets up something from the what is it the Court of Owls uh, and sort of the idea of Gotham being sort of destroyed and needing to be rebuilt and and then these sort of criminal um, courts that that will arise. Um, but I, I could be wrong on that since I, I haven't read the comics. But I think that I, I would have liked the film to kind of just sort of, you could have kind of jumped forward and wrapped up that sort of primary plot line with the, the Riddler instead of moving it to the next point. Anton, what, what is it that you found about the finale? Was it just that the, the Riddler brought bringing in his sort of followers and the, the sort of... Yeah, well, first I'll say I, I don't think the pacing is lethargic. Maybe a uh, somnambulic... Is that a word? Yeah. Right? Like a Which fits with your reference Caligari. to the yeah. What for me, the importance of the the uh, the finale in sort of the, the arena, the political convention, um, it extends the scope outward to address the state of the city. And throughout the film, they're hinting at this fact that, oh, like when the revelations come out, the city is going to like burn down or... When the revelations come out, it's going to, like, change everything. And if all that had happened was um, aspects of Falcone's relationship with characters were revealed, that wouldn't satisfy both the scale and the stakes that they're setting up. Yeah, I, I see where you're going there. It's, I actually, it's not actually clarify something for me. But Okay, it's not epic in the sense that, like, Nolan's films are, are epic in the sense that it's trying to tell the tale of a city especially in The Dark Knight um, Rises, um, where it's like it's very much a story about Gotham City as, as much as it is about Batman. Um, the city has an important role in most Batman stories. It does here. But again, I agree with you that it's a little bit more restricted in its view. Ba- uh, Gotham's not a global city, right? We're, we have no sense of uh, Gotham's place in the nation or the globe in, in terms of geography. It's clearly a New York City pastiche in this of the most gothic elements architecturally and yeah. uh, of New York City, right? Um, but I think that clarifies for me what I found so kind of plot-wise. You know, everyone's saying the revolution is going to change everything, all this stuff. I'm like, why? Everything's like undone in this movie, even before, you know, the revelations of Thomas Wayne's associations with Falcon and Area are going to be, uh, you know, shaking the city. But then, nope, we're going to pull back from that again. And then we're going to do, you know, it, the film never really wants to, to enter into that. Yeah. And so I never really believe, like, really the people in this, this city looks like a piece of garbage. They're terrified to walk the streets at night because the crime is so bad. What could, how could they possibly be any more, uh, you know, shaken in the institutions that have already clearly failed them completely? I will admit that the film doesn't sell the noble lie of renewal, that whole renewal program, which we, I think from the outset, we can sense that there's something corrupt and unfulfilled about it. It doesn't sell the noble lie the way that um, Nolan's trilogy does, which, which essentially, you know, um, some of the heroes go along with actually blaming Batman as Mm -hmm. being the bad guy who did this stuff. And then that, you know, that bridges the Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. So in some sense, that actually presents... Like an, a true noble lie. This movie sort of uh, makes suggestions of that, but then ultimately, from the get-go, from the opening graphic novel-style narration about how horrible this Gotham is and how hellish it is, you know, we understand that this is a cesspool, and we're just the 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 mystery is really just who's you know 
what's the relationship between the cockroaches that are scuttling around once you turn on the lights? It's not that are there going to be cockroaches. Okay, you also have to view this whole plot through the lens of genre, through the the neo-noir aspect. The fact that the corruption in noir, the kind of external crisis, the pathetic fallacy that mirrors the internal crisis is a, is a huge touchstone in that genre and reflects the kind of internal conflict within Bruce Wayne in this film. The fact that the Riddler's entire plan, his audience is not the city so much as Batman. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, it's not meant to make a revelation about the city. It's about Batman to come to a realization about what his actual um, actions and motivations are. The fact that Riddler and him think they're on the same team. And he's like, my whole reign of terror is me making you realize that I'm actually working for the same thing as you. I just go a little bit further in wanting to clear out the corruption where it, and then at that point it becomes a hinge point where Batman has to be like, has to realize because of his um, own family's implications in the city's corruption on an external level and his own methods on a personal level, what the implications are in that is that he does anything, is anything he is doing actually helping the city at all in the narration we hear him say i think it might just be making it worse and i have to change what my tactics are so the actual ending in it's just the whole ending in uh, gotham square garden the whole flooding of the city the fact that batman goes into the water and is reborn and kind of a baptismal resurrection aspect it's this idea that he is dying as the shadowy avenger of the shadows and he's going to be the one to show the way to actually build forward because Riddler has been set up in the public as this oppositional figure. It's it's nothing like super complicated here, but it's it's actually playing back into really kind of tried and true conventions, in the sense that it's the that's why it didn't really work for everything. me though, right? Because like it's it, I didn't I agree. There's nothing complicated enough for it to really sell the noir. But I guess yeah, I mean, so it's working. I think across purposes. Right, Aaron, Those plots are at cross purposes. But how the, the neo noir very much makes the larger social. Um, aspect like one of the focuses right if we think of like uh, Chinatown how Chinatown's not just about the personal story and uncovering that family corruption which is a, you know a huge part of it but it's also the story of Los Angeles and like mm-hmm. the, in the in the original sins of Los Angeles yeah but think but sense. think about this um, as a m- and so this so this movie is doing that to some sense with Gotham so it has to have that larger scale sense like that that's a neo-noir convention to almost have like a larger scale interest in the noir right it is but also you're you're forgetting the fact that like yes i agree this is not a movie that's as complex as an la confidential or a chinatown it's because it's a batman movie it's a it's functioning as a superhero film where it is trying to involve the audience in some kind of commentary on the larger world that exists for the audience not just for the characters and so the fact that it plays into all these themes that have been huge touchstones over the past four years corruption degradation the idea that we're actually just sinking into the black hole and nothing is getting better and even a figure like batman if he exists today in the imagination of audiences everybody is quite aware that batman would not solve any problems in anything and so it's actually quite interesting to go into the mind and try and live this out and 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 kind of poke some little um some little corners of the the audience and see what what smarts when when you poke them and in this way it almost actually plays more similarly to not really surprising something like joker which is we're making a comment about the world within the genre itself here's my controversial take that from a lot of people might find surprising i like joker better than this movie 
I, I think the Joker sold that that whole like social commentary better. Um, it even does the, the, the sort of deconstruction of the myth of, of Thomas Wayne. Um, but this film pulls its punches in a way that Joker doesn't. Um, I think maybe this film is, I think, you know, like I said... Joker's more my, nihilistic, maybe, yes, right? Absolutely. It fully is. And I think that's something that you, you, you know, um, point out, Aaron, that I, I agree. I don't think anything you said is actually particularly wrong. Like I said in my keynote, that this isn't a case where I feel like the people who like it um, watch a different movie than me. I just think it actually shows fundamentally the sort of limitations of the genre when you're trying to do these kind of pastiche things of like, you know, I actually think it actually might show a little bit of the the lie of the uh, sort of common Twitter, film Twitter refrain that, oh, you know, if we're going to have these superhero films, why don't I actually ha- dig into these other genres, have the heist film, have the, you know, the noir film, all these things, you know, that there is actually a limitation to what you can do with some of these stories. And I think then if you want to actually explore the the dynamic of Batman and his relationship to the city and how he might possibly make things better or worse. I think maybe it's just for me to uh, still, it's obviously not too soon because it's, as people have pointed out, it's a shorter distance between Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin and Batman Begins than Dark Knight Rises in this film. But for me, the Nolan films still do that uh, analysis better uh, of Batman and, and what he, how he changes the, the sort of, the city and the world around him in some ways. And, and another way you can see this is in the, um, the, in this film, all the psychos and the freaks, the, the penguin and the Riddler and stuff are actually subordinate to the real life corruption of figures like Falcone and the mayor and, and the, the cops, right? Whereas in, uh, in Nolan's world, you're, you've got that real life corruption that's then by when Batman steps in to, to, to counter that, is amplified in a, in a weird way. He actually is the one at the very end of Batman Begins that it's like, we're going to get blowback now. You, you've, you're you're going to, your es- escalation, your, Batman yeah. is the one who actually does that. What about escalation? Escalation. We start carrying semi-automatics, they buy automatics. We start wearing Kevlar, they buy armor-piercing rounds. And you're wearing a mask, jumping off rooftops. I actually think, for example, you know, it's a point that I think is actually minor, but kind of telling is that, like, Penguin is simply another, uh, you know, obviously in in future films he could take over the Falcone uh, crime syndicate, but he's subservient to Falcone. Right? He's not a boss. He's not the boss. But who is Riddler? Who is Riddler subservient to? I think Riddler he's, he's not. He, but he's not. But he's uh, he's subservient in this. Not subservient, but he's reacting against, as you pointed out, the same as Batman reacting against that real world crime. He's not a reflection of Batman per se. He's a, he's a sort of parallel counter to the real life. But in corruption. the Nolan films, the only character who rises above is Joker because he's the chaos engine. Bane is simply a counter reaction to Bane and Riddler are a lot more similar. I actually had this ben conversation Joker with someone the other day that Bane both, and Riddler are very similar, but I find Bane more compelling in his, uh, right? Bane well, to me fine, is more dangerous because Bane, you know, actually has, makes more more uh, cogent points in a lot of ways. But so the, does the Riddler not, the Riddler plays everyone and the only thing he gets wrong is he doesn't actually put the, the Batman and the alter ego together. Yeah. 
That's the only Which thing. Which is kind of surprising to me, honestly. But it, but it shows, no, because like, it, it actually, well, I actually was surprised in that moment because I thought mm-hmm. he was going to. Same. And I actually thought, but I thought that was a good twist. That was one of the good twists where, like, I thought we were arriving at this point where the Riddler's going to be like, and you're, like, you know, I know who Batman is. And he doesn't. And we get a great moment where Pattison looks and he's, like, expecting him to say it because he's already made... Like, he's already processed that someone has found out who he is. And then he, like, tries to backtrack that. And it's actually a good moment of acting, I thought, on Pattinson's part. Well, I think Pattinson's but, very good in the role. But the only thing I just wanted to say about Riddler, and then we can maybe talk about acting. But, um, so the only thing he gets wrong is his is driven by his, his obsession with Batman and his relationship with Batman, his perceived relationship with Batman. But other than that, he actually, he actually, Batman doesn't even actually uncover all of his twists. Don't you think Batman solves a lot of his riddles too quickly and easily? Yeah, the early ones he does, but doesn't he get it wrong? But he misses so many of the stuff later where Riddler's plan is carried out easily. <laughs> and yeah, he doesn't get to kill as many people in the in the stadium as he wants to, but it already does what he thought it would accomplish, which is, hey, there's all these other people and the weirdos in the city that can start lurking out and okay, well, and we're going to take it our, we're going to take it into our hands and we're going to remake. We're going to do what Raza Ghoul does in Batman Begins, burn it to the ground. So maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of actually talk about these both the casting and these new versions of the characters. Why don't we start with Riddler? Did you guys how what did you think of Dano's Riddler? I mean, I like Paul Dano as an actor. I'm I'm not sure how I feel about this uh, serial killer Zodiac kind of ver- uh, incel internet freak version of Riddler. Um, I'm not sure how well it serves my a sort of preferred version of the character. But um, what did you guys think? It's he's not my preferred version of the character. My preferred version of the character is still the animated series version where he's got the big labyrinth and he's kind of wearing the green suit and being very clever and ha ha ha, I got oh, you again, on. Batman. Come on, not Jim Carrey? Not... Well, Jim Carrey's hilarious, but he's not like the, he's psychotic. the well, What about the guy? Version. What's the name of the guy? Frank Gorshin. Yeah, Frank his, his laugh was oh, but so good. what I liked about Dano is that not only is his um his like physique his his face when they finally we finally see his face in the movie we know how Baldana looks but he is just so non-threatening he is such a schmuck he's got the little double chin and the fogged in glasses and the little boy haircut and it's just like oh wow why is this person who lives this completely non-intimidating in any way shape or form can can terrorize a city and then you know all you have to do is look at a mugshot of some guy who shoots up a mall every two weekends and you're like, oh, these are the people that terrorize. So, of course, there's, again, speaking to the moment that we live in for that kind of stuff. But beyond that, I actually like Dano. I think he's tapping into um, he's tapping into his performance in There Will Be Blood, the preacher speak. Because bit. when he's doing his speeches yeah. as the Riddler, he starts to get into that lilting way of talking. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, like, and he just, it's, it, there's, no, but there's something very similar to his performance in There Will Be Blood because you're not actually quite convinced by it. He's a man. He's play acting. Everything in this movie is a reference point to another. But the movie. play acting, I found it actually to be uh, a little bit. I didn't love it that much. There's a lot in this movie that's too much. That's again, like that's to me part of this movie. It's like so we've turned the Riddler into a Zodiac serial killer, like and like in Batman has insane hair that hangs over his eyes, and like you know he's just like a pure emo goth guy, and you're like. You, it's kind of like you either go with it or you don't. Yeah, I and get I, why, like I said, this I, I might just be a matter of don't. taste. Yeah. Um, what about some of the other characters? What did you think? Of, so let's let's go transition to some of the other uh, versions. Um, I like John Turturro. I think he's good in the film, but uh, you know, 
uh, he's not necessarily for people who aren't really into the comics. I mean, he his a version of his character was played by Tom Wilkinson in Batman Begins. I also really liked uh, Jeffrey Wright. I mean, Jeffrey Wright's so stalwart, but I do also feel like his Gordon kind of like his role is to stand around and act and be the dumb foil for uh, Batman. That like he's like, oh, that's what it is, you know. What about uh, uh, you know? I thought Catwoman. What did you think of her? I, I thought she was pretty good. That's actually I, I liked this this version of Catwoman. I thought Catwoman was good. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I've never been the person who, like, couldn't stand um, Anne Hathaway's. No, she's good. In in Dark Knight Rises. There, there are some people, um, but I also think she's good in this. She's not, I don't think she's anything, like, revelatory, and, uh, like, there's nothing, like, that special. It's still kind of, like, kind of Catwoman's always kind of the same in all the different movies. Like, she's always kind of cool, um, gets good lines, gets good moments. Um, so she was fine, and... Like, I, I really like Jeffrey Wright, basically in everything, and so I liked him as Gordon. Um, I wasn't, I was fairly lukewarm on Colin Farrell's Penguin, partly because Penguin as not a boss seemed, made him seem, like, unimportant. Like, why have him in the movie? And then but also, why, why have, have Colin, Colin Farrell, Farrell in that role? Play why? Him? Oh, take it easy, sweetheart. When he's, like, buried beneath that, I feel like there's just this thing where it's, like, Villains have to be played by big name actors, but we also want to do this thing where it's like realism. So he doesn't isn't just like a, a fat guy with like a top hat and stuff. He's got to be someone who has sort of like a f- disfigured face that kind of looks like a a bird. Mm-hmm. And then so then he like you bury him in the makeup, and then I'm just like, well, why not just cast somebody who would better fit this role yeah. than Colin so Farrell? We, so I, I don't know what's going on. Anson and I saw the the film with uh, Jesse Hutchinson, who was on our um, Beatles episode in uh, December. And, and at the end of the film, Jesse was like, so who is Colin Farrell in the movie? And I was like, Penguin. He's like, what? Didn't, yeah, you could it, it you could know, you could just register him as some like um, subordinate mob guy and like it wouldn't make a difference yeah no but he i think he meant that he didn't actually recognize that he saw in the credits colin farrell and he was like oh okay he knew that was Penguin. oh he knew oh, okay. he was just yeah. like who did colin farrell play i didn't see colin farrell in the movie yeah yeah i think this is a thing where um it, you know i haven't seen it yet but house of gucci as well with jared leto this idea that we can't there's no more room for like weird character actors to uh who you know actually look interesting and, and unique to to play these roles like um, you have to cast a sort of bigger, bigger name, and then you use the makeup to, to, to create the character in that way. But the other thing um, that I was going to say about you know, both Penguin and Catwoman, it's funny that both of them are also in Batman Returns. And I think this, to go back to Catwoman for a second, I think this Catwoman is much more in line with like this sort of, uh, you know, Batman Year One, Selina Kyle, in some ways, the, the animated series, Selena Kyle, the, and, and the Anne Hathaway, she's the, the the thief, but who's also caught up in the underworld. Who And there's this moment, you know, that Bruce is kind of like the pole of, are you going to draw her out? But she's also your way in to the yeah. underworld. As opposed to, but in Batman Returns, both, I mean, both Penguin and Catwoman are freaks. Like, that's, the, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman stands out just simply because she's insane. Yeah. <laughs> she's a bad guy. She's yeah. a bad guy. And she's actually a villain. I thought, see, I thought uh, Colin Farrell was kind of hilarious as Penguin, partially because they make, the the makeup work really makes him look like Robert De Niro. That's true. That's true. <laughs> like, like, and frankly, I thought this was much better makeup work than, like, most of what we see in modern movies. <laughs> like, the fact that he's unrecognizable means true, they're actually true. doing a good yeah. job with the prosthetics. 
Do you like the part where he's like, "I got you, I got you." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there is Colin. There is Colin Farrell isms in the like weird um, belligerent anger that is in the character. <laughs> the other thing I have to say is that that having Penguin in this is one of those cases of franchise building because there's going to be a Penguin TV show on HBO Max. Oh really? Oh really? Starring With- Colin Farrell. Oh my what? goodness. Oh, yeah, man. so it's kind of similar to Peacemaker spinning off of okay. Suicide Squad. It's them actually. It's so in this case, it's like, well, you know, if we have another movie, Penguin can come back because he can take over the Mob Empire. But then we can also have this. But in this film, it's like people, audience members, would be like, oh, that's the Penguin. That's kind of funny. But it's your guys are correct. It's not like there's there's like a real reason to have him there. <laughs> if we're gonna have Colin Farrell in this movie, this dark, why can't we just get like a Colin Farrell like in season two, True Detective? <laughs> yeah. What about, uh, also, I was kind of disappointed in Andy Serkis as Alfred. It, it, he really has nothing to, like, nothing to do. There's, like, the weird oblique reference to, yeah. uh, you know, he, that he was in MI6 or something. And, you know, like, uh, and I understand why he cast Serkis, because they, you know, he worked, they worked on Planet of the Apes uh, together. But um, it's not so much that this, he, he's a bad Alfred. It's more that they give him nothing to do. And they assume yeah. the... It's something that a lot of these superhero movies do, which is just assume that you know the backstory relationship. And, and some of the things are, are, are a bit almost, like, comical. I thought one of the weakest parts of the movie, and I think, like, you pointed this out to me after we saw it, and I, I think it's apt, even though I like the movie more than you, that Alfred on his sick bed and Bruce being torn up about it was very unearned. And, uh, like, you know, the... The Nolan movies spend quite a bit of time on the relationship between Alfred and Batman, and they never give you a uh, tearjerker moment. Like this, they this don't Alfred's ever never gonna do it that way. cry that he's not gonna bury another Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I will not do it, Master Bruce. I will not do it. I'm not gonna bury another Batman. Yeah, no. It, you're, so you're correct in that um, this is a case of the movie relying so much on, you know, extra textual information, which is the fact that everybody knows the relationship. And so this is one of the things that when you don't, you know, people are praising the movie for not having the origin story in it. And in some ways it is refreshing to not have the origin story. But again, if you don't have the image of the boy at the grave and Alfred puts his hand on the shoulder, you don't get the actual imagery that creates the emotional relationship on screen in this version that you can then build to the actual pain and, and anguish. And Nolan doubles that up by even having the scene where young, uh, a very young Jim Gordon comforts Bruce Wayne, yep. not even yep. knowing that this is the guy that he's going to end up having this uh, in-depth uh, friendship relationship with. We keep going back to the Nolan movies, and it is I hard. Can't, and maybe, you know, it's hard for me. But Nolan actually to. builds, he's the only person in basically any superhero movie who builds a universe entirely for his films and then wraps it up. But, like, he also builds it. We forget that Batman Begins builds the character and his world in a way that no other super... And I don't think everybody needs to do that, right? No, actually, In fact, I would even go so far as to say, if you want to talk about Alfred's, like... But then there was also nothing... I never got the the sort of world weariness and uh, exasperation of Jeremy Irons, Alfred. Yeah, so so world weary. (laughs) So good. No, but what I was saying is that it's, I think it's kind of inevitable to compare it against the Nolan movies because even if there is no definitive version of Batman, as you point out, Anton, in your essay, it's still the classic screen Batman. Like, you know, some people will, for some reason, scream and cry that Tim Burton's Batman is the best one, but it's like... No, I think the whole world kind of has agreed that The Dark Knight is the best Batman movie and the Nolan ones are kind of the classic takes on the material. So I, I saw this movie with my wife and her take afterwards was like, 
that was pretty good, but I kind of would just want to go watch The Dark Knight again. And I completely understand that because it's like, well, The Dark Knight was very gritty and dark and, and heavy thematics and kind of like a depressing watch. And yet, I, she's just like, I, you know, Christian Bale is Batman and Bruce Wayne are so great. And I like Pattinson, but it, it, every comparison is kind of like a slight downgrade. Yeah. And I'm like, that that is hard to overcome. But then it's also like, why should we ever try and won't make another yeah. Batman movie? Then sure. you have to do a variation. But then it's also that this movie is not playing in via- variation to Nolan. It's playing in variation to Marvel, to yep. Snyder movies, to all the other superhero stuff. And this movie, if you put it up against Spider-Man No Way Home, you put it up against Wonder Woman, you put it up against Aquaman, you put it up against even movies I like. Like, I like Aquaman. Uh, but what? <laughs> this movie is much more... It's much more of a movie. It's just like, sure. it looks like a movie. It acts like a movie. It's got bigger ideas. It's not like, it doesn't just seem like a piece of content. Yeah. And that's actually nice to watch. But that so, doesn't mean that I can't like then critique it as a movie. No, no, yes. of, of course. It invites of course. the critique. But so what I'm like, saying is that if it's a, it's a movie that like, it's it's weird. It's one of those things where you, you want to take it on its own terms, but in actuality, the movie itself is being presented in relationship to both the genre genre that it operates in the references that it's pulling in and the past batmans so it's really really hard to take this movie on its own terms and that might be a case study of batman's all batman stuff going forward it might actually just be like almost impossible to look at batman movies on their own and so it's really difficult to do this kind of like discussion with the three of us where we're trying to get at something essential to this film and whether it works or doesn't work without bringing something else into the equation. Yeah. But that's the nature of, on some level, that's the nature of all these superheroes because it's repetitive iterations, right? Like you just, you keep doing them again and again and again. And so you just talk about how it's been done again rather than, um, you know, like there is no, yeah, I think like that's this idea what of the, the quest Burton for the films, uh, pointless. The advantage that the Burton films had was that there had never, I mean, it had been like since the 60s, right? Since there had really been a, a Batman movie, and um, so they had that novelty. And I, you know, I also think it's legitimate to say that a person could enjoy elements of the Burton films, uh, say, as opposed to this one. I think it's the if it's I don't, the one they I grew don't up think with, anyone's it totally wrong. Makes I don't sense. think anyone's wrong to think to prefer say this one. Um, they can they can it's argue it's thing. better. They can argue it's better. What I'm saying is that there is the, the Gen X generation has this kind of like want to have its cake and eat its too, where they're like, well, it's the one I grew up with and it was my favorite movie when I was. 12 years old and then they'll also be like it's much better than nolan's films and you're like i'm pretty sure the first thing you said contradicts the second thing you said i'm teaching nolan right now inception but like the thing the difference is just to you know say something about nolan quick but like the dark knight people don't only talk about that within superhero movies people just talk about the dark knight as like a great film like one of the great films and that's the thing that's the difference in like but what I will give credit to this movie and to Joker, um, and I think I think you're right, Anders, that there is a lot of common ground, is that these are the only two superhero movies, or whatever we want to call them, superhero world movies of recent years, that I want to talk about in this way, uh, like, as movies. Like, I loved uh, Justice League, like, Snyder's Justice League. I think that's the best, you know, Maybe superhero you team movie. Maybe throw at Logan. Again, a film which I didn't actually love yeah. that much compared yeah, to a lot Logan, of people. I know Logan you liked it a lot, be, but, Lo- but Logan, I Logan would be, a lot too. I know, but, but again, Logan that might be, be similar. An, yeah, Logan would probably be like those three, where I want to talk about it more as a film and less as just like a work in the superhero 
genre. Like, because I, I think that, like, Joker was saying stuff about, um, like, loner males that few other films were actually getting. Like, in, in, there's elements in this movie, too, and I, I talk about it in my essay, that I, like, I think it's tapping into stuff that actually most movies aren't actually doing. What about the thrills in action? Just I, on a film as its own, what did you what did you think? Like, I found, like, this, a lot of people talk about the this big central car chase, and there is some inventive stuff, like, with the, the camera, like, flipping over and, and things like that, but I actually I found it disorienting. I couldn't really, you know, anyone who... Again, I don't want to... Uh, again, we go back to Nolan, but, like, anyone who wants to criticize Nolan and his... The editing as being unclear or criticize it in that way, I'm like, come on, guys. Like, compare the the central like uh joker yeah. uh semi-trailer chase in uh dark knight versus this car chase there's no comparison the the action is less exciting um he uses some interesting stylistic things again i like the, the shootout the whole... where they were lighting the, yes. the hallway with the yes. muzzle flares that was cool like, those are things that are like it's smart it's stylish they add an interesting flair i also like his like I actually really like when he breaks out of the prison. and there, I felt a strong sense that, like, oh, you do not want all these cops to grab him. Like, like you know, yeah, like... Yeah, I, I kind of love that shot of him just standing there, and there's, like, a million cops, and then the one guy says something, he just starts wailing on them. <laughs> Why didn't they unmask him right away, though? That makes no sense. <laughs> no, it's because they're... Pro- Again, is this an intertextual thing? Is it the assumption that if somebody tries to take it off, it will shock them? Like it does in Dark Knight? Maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's just, there's... I, so that's never that's a, a bit of a cheat though. I don't think the action is um, no that's that's fine. It, it's true. I, I thought that in the in the cinema as well. I, I think the action is most interested in um, stylistic flourishes and not so much in the choreography or the um, the assembly of it. So I don't think there's anything like bad with the action. I think the most interesting action scenes are when there's nothing is is like the opening scene when it's him coming out of the shadows and just like destroys those guys or the shot in the hallway as you allude to with the muzzle flares of him advancing and taking out the guys and it almost seems like a it's a you know a one take without being mm-hmm. a one take but just because the way that shadow and light plays in that yeah. actual scene in the actual action scenes you know when he escapes from the top of the tower and then crashes his flying down, like where he screws up flying and he like slams into something. Like I thought that was funny. <laughs> With his flying squirrel like, suit. Yeah, his little jumper suit. And it's funny, like, but that-, that was actually a moment of like it was unbelievable. It cuts right into like more action. And it was unbelievable that he wouldn't like I actually was like, he has to be like in such pain. Like This Batman is in a huge amount of I love the fact that he gives himself an adrenaline shot later in the movie. Yeah. He's just so wasted. Like the fact that he, he like when he takes that shotgun shot to the chest and you yeah. can just see he's like dying under there. The fact that he can even survive it. But um the the one comment I'll say about the car chase scene is that that scene is most interesting in its audible like the music like the music and the sound because the second he first revs up the batmobile and there's that shot of just the engine and again it's through use of mirrors of watching it's the penguin looking in the rearview mirror and he's like oh crap oh crap oh crap and it's just the soundtrack is just revving louder and louder I, and yeah. louder I, this I don't is what think I, I like got about that at the, yeah. the theater the same way so I this should, is like, maybe I the one thing IMAX i like about this film is anton you mentioned it in your essay is the themes of like watching and the sort of you know, you, you alluded to Hitchcock. I think there's also a little bit of, like, De Palma-ish kind of, mm-hmm. uh, yep. you know, voyeurism as well. Um, the scene the, the, the scene when Selena's going into the club and Bruce is, like, watch, or Batman's watching through her eyes with the little yeah. uh, cameras. I, I liked that scene because it had attention to it. 
you that know, seems what, super De Palma. The idea yeah. of like totally like, sort of watching like a straight out of like even eyes. like almost like a I know femme fatale or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It, Which you I could almost see it in split screen. Couldn't yeah. you see like? Totally. Couldn't you yes. imagine in your head that he could have done the so, whole scene split screen? So that that's probably maybe even my one of my my favorite scenes and, and how gross and uh, pathetic Peter Sarsgaard is. <laughs> oh yeah, it's the DA. Yeah, dependable. Yeah. So, but it leads into the themes, right? There's this theme of looking. There's this theme of like Batman watching uh, from the shadows and stuff like that. But I think the other big theme that is, you know, that the, f- the film wants to wear is this idea of vengeance. I am vengeance, um, and the difference between vengeance and justice, which I think you already alluded to with Batman's uh, sort of rebirth and baptism at the, at the at the end of the film. I I think that sort of brings us full circle to me thinking that one of the things that this film, in its sort of uh, sort of thematic or even if you want to call it political I, I, I think people overstate the politics of these movies including the Nolan ones I think superhero films are more uh, evocative than they are considered political trees yes. I, and I, I'm okay with that I don't want them actually to be trying to you know like even things that people accuse of being like reactionary like say Dark Knight Re- uh, Returns by Miller uh, doesn't really have that I mean you know um, Reagan's the villain in it you know like it has this muddled kind of weird take so and that's okay but the um this film lacked a sort of harvey dent character you could actually feel like meaning the the good harvey dent yeah there's no good harvey dent who can who like sells the sort of actual like corruption and death and the like lack of hope at the end of the film that batman's going to counter in any kind of way but um, I thought some of the politics, like, yeah, you know, it's it's a bit all over the place. You know, I, I kind of, like, almost wanted to groan a bit at Selena's Rich White Assholes line because it felt kind of obligatory in some way. I don't know. Am I wrong? Yeah. No, I feel like, like, I knew she was going to say that, basically. So it does sort of feel, like, um, a little bit obligatory. Um, I do think, I just think, like, superhero films, they're not they're not ideological in the sense that they're like manifestos for politics. Like, I think you're right with that. They're ideological in the sense that they represent what we ascribe value yes, to in our, absolutely, in our culture. Yeah. So this movie is interesting in terms of its ideology on that sense, but not, but very muddled on a, like, if you were trying to map out its politics based on certain lines of dialogue and how it would mm-hmm. line up with real world exactly. politics, very muddled. Cause I think they present this sort of like progressive AOC type, uh, like the, the, the one, the new mayor, yeah, the new mayor is definitely like, you know, like she reminds me of one of those sort of like, um, progressive Democrats who sort of like, yeah, the, like a member of the squad up and coming, they're going to like fight corruption. It's unclear whether we should believe that she'll be able to sell it or not, but it's, but the film's definitely not totally cynical on her. So it sort of keeps it open that there's potential at the same time, like, you know, anytime there's vigilantism, people will assume there's sort of like a, a right wing politic to that um but i i like i keep i don't know if this is a film that actually is interested in it's not interest it 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 doesn't have much to say about justice on a like social or political or city scale but it's very interested in like what vengeance means personally to bruce and his relationship with that and i think his eventual sort of relinquishing of that through seeing what uh the riddler becomes through pursuing it. I think that's accurate. And because, you know, I'll, po- I'll point out that I think the Riddler's, uh, what would we call it? his copycat crew who helps, who flocks to him from the online. Like, to me, this was an example of like, you know, at the end of the day, you're like, these guys do terrible things, but you're like, 
they're actually acting off of a reaction to clear and real evils within the city. So it's like these are these are true vigilantes. It's like people doing bad things, but in reaction to bad things being done. Yeah. The one thing I didn't, I also like, I it sort of fits is like this. The desire it does suffer a little bit from like shrinking world syndrome, even like call, having like Martha Wayne's maiden name be Martha Arkham. Is that is that a reference to something I'm not getting? Because I thought yeah, that I, was kind I don't of know lame. the reference on that. Maybe it's out there. I don't know if the Arkham series like. So that come up in the video game? No. Because I've never heard of that before. And It might uh, be in some more recent comic books. There is a lot of Batman stuff. Like, the, the touch points for the comics are here, like, the, of the ones that we've read, all read, like yeah. Long Halloween, Hush, Year One. But, you know, the more esoteric stuff or the more recent stuff, or even um, Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum, like, I haven't read those. I don't know. Yeah, so my knowledge of sort of, like, the past decade and a half of Batman comics is is not really same it's not like you saw a different movie than me i think this is in many ways a matter of taste maybe the gray in my beard is showing my age and i you know as anton says in his essay this is this is the zoomer batman and i'm i'm too old for this (laughs) i'm too old for this shit but you can see the Batman playing in theaters pretty much everywhere. It's on all, all the screens right now, at least for the next little while. So uh, check it out. Who's the mustache with the broken nose? It's Kinsey, narcotics. He's one of the guys I got into it with at the Iceberg Lounge. What do you think? Kinsey Moon Knights with the penguin. All right, Mom, let's just go. The Batman is the latest in a long line of reboots of, of the Batman character by Warner Brothers and DC Comics. And I specify reboot as opposed to sequels, um, since these new takes by Burton, Nolan, Snyder, Reeves... We can maybe argue whether the Schumacher is a, uh, a, a reboot or not. They, they seem to be in separate continuity from each other, uh, as well as at the same time as they're drawing on a common source material into comics. So it seems like these terms, sequel, reboot, and then now, Aaron, you noted in your review of the most recent Scream film, Scream 5, which I haven't seen, the, they introduced this term, requel. All of these terms attempt to identify what Perhaps in academic film studies, we might describe as sort of a metatextual intermediality. That is, uh, we're weaving between different versions of the same character and themes in different modes or, and registers, if not even different media. Anton, you suggested in an essay a while ago, earlier term for a requel when you wrote about Jurassic World, uh, the diegetic reboot, uh, in which a film essentially replays key elements and themes while doing so in the same continuity with at least the first early film in the series. So why don't we clarify uh, what we mean by these terms? And what are the distinctions between a remake and a reboot or a readaptation and a requel? So I think a reboot versus a remake. A remake would be, in some sense, it was an older term. It's still in use today, but a remake is where you're essentially telling the same story again from a previous film, and then telling a new version of it. But there has to be a, a narrative um, replay or repeat 
for it to be a remake. An example would be I, I wrote recently on Gaslight. Uh, Gaslight 1944 is an American remake of a 1940 British film. And you'll often notice that Americans will remake foreign films. So another good example would be how Scorsese uh, does The Departed based on the Hong Kong film Infernal Affairs. So that to me is a remake. A reboot became in, in prominence with sort of the whole franchise era where you're not telling the same specific narrative again but there are common elements in the property or franchise. So it's, you know, in the superhero case, it's the same characters, the same story world. But the reboot is very much about, right, it's like uh, the terms, you know, from the, the computer. You're trying to hit the button to reignite, restart the continuity, essentially. Yeah, and often, would you, would you say that one of the distinctions between a remake and a reboot, then I think you hit on something in addition to those earlier distinctions, is that the remake is often a film that is made for people who may have little or no knowledge of the, the other version. Yeah, a remake doesn't require any knowledge of the previous version. A reboot, you, as with your, to use your computer metaphor, is actually to reignite interest in. So you reboot when a franchise has run out of steam. So like I think often I would say that the Nolan Batman Begins is, is clearly the reboot of... The, the earlier 90s Batman series. Because I think the Schumacher ones, even though there's a distinct tonal shift to some degree, not as much as some people make it out, because I think that they all played with camp to varying degrees, but there's a distinct tonal shift, but the, the Schumacher ones do seem to be sort of within the same world. Yeah, it's uh, unclear whether they're sequels, because they don't repeat the same uh, villains. There's the assumption kind of that the Joker's dead. So it's unclear. Um, but I, I actually think the term reboot really emerged around when uh, Batman Begins happened. And there's this whole idea of like, oh, they're making a Batman movie, but it's not like a sequel Batman. We're starting Batman again. Batman Begins. That, that's the key. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But that's the essence of like of the reboot. Yeah. Aaron, like, what do you think then? So what's a requel and how does that fit in? So going off the idea that the reboot is defined by continuity and chronology. It's the fact that it exists with, you know, it's about resetting the continuity timeline to build out a new chronology, but it all exists within the same franchise, right? So the requel is a reboot that does not reset continuity. It exists within the same continuity, but what it essentially does is remake the plot of the original film, but it exists within that world. So obviously the ultimate example of this is Star Wars The Force Awakens, which essentially has the same plot as A New Hope. Yep. But it's almost a remake. Yes, it's a remake, but it exists within the same world where A New Hope has already happened. And so characters refer to the events of that in The Force Awakens, and Han Solo shows up, Chewbacca shows up, Luke shows up at the end. Like, so that's the kind of understanding here where it's, it's this... Um, the requel also exists for basically two main purposes. Extend the franchise, keep the franchise going, keep the property churning out the content, and play on nostalgia. Because it allows you to bring in the elements that were there originally in the things that whatever intended audience liked in the first place. I want to clarify something extra in there. I think that just like Reboot gains its uh, sort of currency in the franchise era sort of post 2000 era franchise and intellectual property filmmaking uh the requel is the same way because many traditional sequels would often repeat elements of the original films 
mm-hmm. you know, I was discussing it with my, my, my kids, my boys wanted to try to figure this out a little bit too. And they were like, well, but Home Alone 2 is a sequel, but it kind of repeats the plot of the first film, right? And, and that, yeah. you often find that in like, you know, even action movies from like the 80s and stuff like that. The, the remakes, like Lethal Weapon. Yep. Yeah, le- remakes kind of like feel familiar, even as they like, you know, literally play the, the thing again. But the requel, I think, really relies on that idea of like reigniting interest in like a flagging franchise by playing, as you said, on uh, nostalgia and maintaining the continuity rather than starting again from scratch, right? Yeah. So it's like the the requel is the secret formula for Hollywood studios to never let a franchise die, but they can always tap back in. And of course, Marvel has gone one further with the multiverse concept, yeah. <laughs> which allows them to have all their cakes and eat them too. So the precursor to the multiverse um, requel, or as I like to call it, like a diegetic reboot, would be J.J. Um, Abrams' Star Trek, right? On some level? Because it you, it uses like the that this time destruction. Yeah, you're right. Like, because it has Spock in it. Yeah. No, the Star Star Trek's an interesting one because it does that, and it build it technically is a sequel to Nemesis. Yeah. Because it, it takes place afterwards. Yeah. But it is also a reboot because it incorporates new versions of the characters. Yeah. Um. So that's actually a very interesting test case. So it does make J.J. Abrams in some ways the the king of current content in yeah. like the way that we actually yeah. both the requel uh, and <laughs> yeah the sort di- yeah of all of all kinds yeah. Um, the other interesting thing it, to me is requels that go back and mine in continuity with an original film while ignoring sort of interceding films that people didn't like. I think the first one that sort of like made a big splash about this was Brian Singer's Batman or sorry Superman Returns in 2006 yeah. that is a, a, a diegetic sequel to only the first two Superman movies, right? Yeah, uh, At the same time... It unfairly ignores yeah. the third and fourth. Exactly. <laughs> I know you like those, Anton, <laughs> with your kids. The uh, But like the... Uh, but at the same time, it's also so clearly a a, uh, a diegetic reboot or requel in the sense that it retreads the the nostalgia and the plot of the original, including having like what well, you know. One of my complaints about that film was like, oh, you got Lex Luthor doing a real estate scam again, like to try to like you know yep. create new land and stuff like that. And then the diegetic reboot, like it, it, it's always a preoccupation. The relationship between the new and the old is like a primary uh, theme, and you'll get often even like meta references like you know obviously like aaron like scream because scream's such a meta film series but like you know in jurassic world you know the one guy's wearing the the jurassic Jake johnson's character yeah yeah he's wearing the like the jurassic world t-shirt which it's is like a reference say, not right? only that like oh like they sold this merch at the original theme park but it's also like to you know all the people who bought the actual merchandise and the original jurassic park was very much weirdly blending the idea of like um the tie-ins within the world itself Mm -hmm. what's interesting to me is like so uh superman returns kind of does that like diegetic reboot requel with uh well skipping over a few but it it didn't have any of the original actors really from right it's recasting and stuff like that as opposed to the ones that really mine the nostalgia with like force awakens and uh, say uh, Danny McBride and David Gordon Green's Halloween is to bring back the original actors playing the same roles in a more aged thing. And the funny thing is now Jurassic World, which in one sense is like, you know, within the same world but different characters. Now in the newer ones, you now are bringing in uh, 
Jeff Goldblum and yeah. Sam Neill and them reprising their roles. So now you're getting both <laughs> all yeah. converging in that way. So I think um, listeners might have a genuine reflection here being like, why are you guys talking about this? And why are you talking about this with the Batman? And I think the reason why we wanted to talk about this is that this um, concept, whether it's remakes, reboots, requels, really kind of, it's inescapable in modern Hollywood. At right now, this is the thing that happens. And so it seems like every filmmaker is almost, um, has this kind of weird deal with the devil in the sense that the film will be made, whether will it be made with you, and how are you going to actually operate within these franchise dictates where it's almost, it's almost establishing of kind of like a new Hayes Code in Hollywood. In not, this is not the only way that, that we are establishing a new Hayes Code, but it's one of the elements in the sense that it has to follow these kind of pre-written rules. It has to estab- follow into one of these um, prescribed genres, which have, you know, in, in all Hollywood, I always, I always t- when talking to friends who are really into superhero movies and they're like, oh, you know, superhero movies, superhero movies, they're great and everything. And I'm like, well, they're kind of like Westerns really, back in the 1940s and 50s. No, they they are in the sense that Westerns were like one of the three genres that was just constantly being pumped out. And there was an assumption that direct actors would be making, they would be working in Westerns and all the Westerns kind of had this through line, even though none of them were actually like franchises, but there was kind of an assumption that they were playing on the iconography of Recurring the actors, actual, for instance. Yeah. yeah, for like a John Wayne or a Henry Fonda or whoever, uh, Robert Mitchum. It, yeah, there characters like upon even that. the supporting characters like Walter Brennan and stuff popping up in them. And stuff yeah, like that. but it, it's it's this idea that like, well, you know, back in the day, Westerns were the biggest things ever and nobody could have ever thought that Westerns would ever go away. And then at some point that bubble popped and they just stopped making them I like, think the almost big... entirely and that's going to happen then well, the reason i bring this up with some friends of superhero movies i'm like this will happen to superhero movies someday but it's not happening yet so right now we're living in this world of franchises dictate almost all hollywood content so when filmmakers approach something like the batman or like a star wars movie there is a kind of preset condition that you have to have a b and c so the question is what art are you actually going to smuggle into the product itself to turn it into art. And so this is the kind of tension that I think is there, and it comes out in a movie like Scream, where, like the newest Scream, where mm-hmm. they spend a significant amount of the movie ripping on the fact that most movies nowadays are unoriginal and repeating things, and just constantly going back to the same well to play on nostalgia. And it's like, people would be like, well, that's a really cheap, easy joke here. And it's like, well, would you rather have the thing eating, you know, eating itself like an Ouroboros unironically like no way home or would you rather have the the thing that will <laughs> play with it like make fun of its own existence in a pattern and so it's something like the batman fits in this because it's in you know it's a reboot but it also makes assumptions yep. within the franchise to other connections and it's in some ways going to spawn a new franchise that exists parallel to the DCEU one so it it Matt Reeves in deciding he's making a Batman movie is handcuffed by all these franchise assumptions that are at play right now. Yeah. Even though you're, you know, that that what that western argument I think can only be pushed so far in terms of um, the differences between filmmaking today and back then in terms of the number of films that come out. Uh, obviously there was actually more westerns on a, a pure number per year than superhero films, but uh, there was a recent article by Farron uh, Nemi, uh, self siren on Twitter, who all, she also writes at Roger Ebert and some other places, in examining this and, and breaking down in terms of the dominance of the box office. And I think Westerns still had, there, there was a, a greater range of like budgets and stuff like that, 
superhero films are much more dominant, and that means that I think it's even harder to take risks. I think it's harder to do the smuggling, so to speak, that that you say because no, I, I agree. It's IP, not a per- uh, sort of. Uh, in the whole so I think you're right. Upon them. right. It's not so, a perfect metaphor. It's no, not a perfect metaphor, so, but it's an instructive thing for people who don't have any understanding of film history, where it's like, the, it's 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 more about the fact that there was a Hollywood of the past where it was envisioned that westerns would never go away. Sure. And so that is the the rules or of musicals. the game is always shifting. No, exactly that too. But there's these genres that dominated Hollywood and had rules that they had to follow and artists figured ways and there, i think you're completely correct that there was actually more room to do interesting things within the old hollywood so system. i think your metaphor your that metaphor comparison is instructive in showing how hollywood's changed yeah, particularly yeah. as well i'm just going to throw in maybe a, a final comment about superheroes and the you know in the state of cinema the, my question to you guys is so we're assuming that the superhero is maybe eventually supplanted by something else I'm just wondering if what happens if these superhero tent poles, which hold the whole system afloat on a financial level, lose their appeal and there's nothing to replace them? Or will there, do you think there's automatic power and pores a vacuum? That, something that will fill in, right? Yeah, but on unless, a film unless, level, but, 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 but yeah. as uh, I think it was Spielberg and Soderbergh and Lucas uh, said a few years ago, when they do, if and when they do fail, um, they're going to bring a whole lot of. They might bring a few studios down with them, right? Yeah. So I, do, I think something will rise to fill a void. I don't think, but whether that's even uh, different forms of entertainment and things is uh, mm-hmm. is a possibility. But you know, some studios might go down <laughs> if the if that yeah. fails. But if we're speaking about studios, also though, the reason, like, despite my saying that at someday the the era of superheroes will end, it will not go forever. It might be a lot longer than we think. Because it's the main purview of Disney, which has an essential monopoly on the industry. And until that monopoly is challenged in some meaningful way, whether that means a restructuring of the global film, like say some Chinese production company studio comes to fruition and is so massive that it can rival Disney and it can actually start dictating the terms of the industry that Disney doesn't want to react against. That That's a whole other conversation. But there's, I think at the moment... Because Disney is so uh, successful in the nostalgia machine, and because No Way Home was such a huge hit, we're actually not at the peak yet of superheroes. And it's actually shocking to me to say that. (laughs) Unless that was the peak, but who knows? When I told you that if Gotham no longer needed Batman, we could be together, I meant it. But now I'm sure the day won't come when you no longer need Batman. I hope it does. And if it does, I will be there. But as your friend. I'm sorry, Harvey. I'm sorry to let you down. If you lose your faith in me, please keep your faith in people. Love now and always, Rachel. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. Uh, We hope that you found it interesting and that you will uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and uh, read our reviews. Until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye, Mr. Bowman. I bid you farewell. Farewell.